Now I hope you'll understand the context in which I'm going to share this opening story. Let me repeat to you that this story happened before I was ever a Christian or even knew what a Christian was. But my freshman year in college, I sort of prided myself on being quite a card player. We had done a lot of card playing in the dormitory, and I had done a fair bit as a high school uh, student, and I, I, I sort of thought I really could play cards. And so I started pledging for a social fraternity down at the University of North Carolina. And there were also some people in this fraternity who thought they could play cards. In fact, these guys would get up in the morning, uh, well, in those days, morning was like 10, 30, or 11, have breakfast, play cards till lunch, take a break for lunch, play cards all afternoon, take a break for supper, play cards until around 3 in the morning, go to bed, and no lie, get up the next morning and go right back and pick up where they left off. These guys never went to class, never did anything but play cards. Now, it was a rule in this fraternity, you could not play cards with the members of the fraternity while you were pledging. And that was a good rule because people could lose their temper and there could have been misunderstanding, and so that was a good rule. But as we approached initiation and the time where I would be confirmed as a member, I sort of began uh, shooting my mouth off just a little bit and saying, I can't wait to get you guys at a card table. I'm going to really show you what it's like. And I just talked it up. Man, I really talked it up. Talked it up. So sure enough, our, in our uh, installation, that's really not the best word for it. I suppose a better word for it would sort of be see if you can survive through. Our initiation weekend was over on a Sunday afternoon, and the first thing I did, and I had had any sleep all weekend, and I said, all right, you guys ready? Here we go. Let's go into the card table. I want to tell you, I got blitzed. I mean, I got blitzed. I really thought I was pretty good. And these guys demolished me. And I walked out of there humbled and realizing beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's a lot easier to talk a good game than it is to play one. Oh man, I could talk a good game. But when I got in there and the chips were on the table, so to speak, it's a lot different to sit in there and play it than it is to talk it. Now you might say, what does that have to do with anything? But it has a lot to do with what James is going to tell us tonight. Oh, certainly not in the same context. And I certainly don't endorse card playing, don't get me wrong. But it's a good example of what James is going to be talking about. And he is going to be telling us this evening that God is not interested in talk. He's interested in action. James chapter 1, if you'll follow along silently, I'd like to read beginning at verse 21. Therefore, James says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own souls. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effective doer, this man shall be blessed in whatever he does. James begins by saying, 
that we need to receive, verse 21, the implanted word, the word of God, which is able to save our souls. Now, there's all sorts of interpretations of this verse, and it's not an easy verse to interpret. But clearly, James is reminding us of our need to respond properly to the word of God in regard to salvation. He's saying, receive that word, which is able to save your souls. A good place to begin. Salvation response to the word of God. But he doesn't stop here because so many of us do. If we wouldn't stop here, James probably could have. When I was a student in North Carolina, I had a friend who received Christ. At least he said he did. And once he did, he began all of a sudden to live for the Lord, to really begin to obey the Scripture. But then as the demands of living for Christ began to tell on him, he suddenly changed. And I remember him telling me one day, you know what I decided? I decided that now that I know Christ, now that I've received Christ, now that I'm headed for heaven, I'm pretty much free to do whatever I want. God loves me. God cares about me. God has a concern for me. And so therefore, God, it's people who get hung up on all these things. It's people who make this thing an issue or that thing an issue or this other thing an issue. It's people who worry about drinking or people who worry about immoral sexual activity or people who worry about this, that, or the other. Not God. God loves me. He wants me to be me. That is why James couldn't stop here. Because reacting to the Word of God correctly with regard to salvation is just a place to begin. And too many of us sometimes stop right there, but James goes a step further. Would you look with me? He says that isn't the end of it. Verse 22, but prove yourselves to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers. You see, he says that a man who looks at the Word of God, looks at himself in light of the Word of God, hears the Word of God, gets a true picture of himself. He says if anyone's a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like the man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's forgotten what kind of person he was. Well, what told him what kind of person he was? How did he find out just what kind of person he was? that he could forget it. Well, the Word of God told him. He read the Word of God. The Word of God confronted his life. And the Word of God pointed out where he was and who he was and just what kind of man he was. Oftentimes, pointing out our weaknesses. But if the man doesn't do what needs to be done to change these things, if he doesn't do what this book says need to be done to address those shortcomings and correct them, then he's fooling himself. He's deluding himself, Jane says. He's pretending to be something that he isn't. He's pretending he saw something in this word that he didn't. Or vice versa. He's pretending that when he confronted this word, this word said to him, you're perfect. You have no need of change. You're doing just fine. And everything in your life is just the way it ought to be. 
And then he walks away saying, oh, there's no need for change in me. I'm fine. Deluding himself. But the man who does what God tells him, who walks away from that confrontation with God's Word, determined to change his life and alter his behavior and do what God said needed to be done, that's the man that James says in verse 25, will be blessed by God in whatever he does. He's the one who has the promise that God will bless his life. And so the point is this. Here's the point I want us to get. That God is more interested in what you do than what you say you're going to do. Or perhaps we could say it in a more colloquial way. James, in so many words, is telling us that we need to put our money where our mouth is. I was down in, in Dallas, Texas a couple of years ago at Dallas Seminary for some interviews, and I had the privilege of being in chapel one day at Dallas Seminary when W.A. Criswell spoke. Now, most of you, I think, know who W.A. Criswell is, but for those of you who don't, he's the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. I don't know how many people they have, but not quite millions, Vicki, but they have tens of thousands. They have lots. He's the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, a real man of God, and an orator. He's an orator. But he has Texas humor, and I don't have Texas humor, but he told a story that I've never forgotten. He said it was true. He said he went to a football game one day. A friend of his in his congregation invited him to the Texas-Oklahoma football game. Now, I hear that's one of those knock them down, drag them out, year-in and year-out rivalries, Texas and Oklahoma. And they invited him to this game. And he said they sat down and they were getting themselves settled in and the game was beginning to progress and it was a pretty close game. And the guy sitting in front of him was a little heavyset guy and, and just drinking that beer, just down in that beer, beer after beer, just drinking it down. He said, and finally, after a couple of beers, the guy stood up, had a $20 bill in his hand, turned around and just yelled up into the stands, hey, all you Texas fans up there, I got $20, says Oklahoma wins. Nobody said anything. That's because Oklahoma was the number one ranked team in the nation that year. So he sat down. One more beer. A little while later, W.A. Criswell said he stood up, $50 in his hand. Turned around, hey, all you Texas fans up there, $50. Oklahoma wins. Still no takers. So he sat down. You guessed it, a few more beers. Finally he stood up, $100 bill in his hand. A little bit harder to discern his words now than it was earlier. But everybody had the point. Hey, oh, you and you know the story. Nobody took him up on it. So with help from his buddy, he sat down. W.A. Criswell hit his friend. He said, you know something? I'd like to have that guy in my church. His friend looked at him and went, what? You want that guy in your church? Sitting here drinking beer, boozing it up, betting football? Yep, W.A. Criswell said. He said, there's a lot about that guy I like. He said, in fact, there's three things that impressed me about that man. 
He said, number one, that guy believes in his team. Number two, that guy's got enthusiasm. And number three, he puts his money where his mouth is. <laughs> now, I'm not a Texan, and I can't tell that story like he can. But the point's well taken. That people who really put their money where their mouth is are few and far between. And it's easy to talk a good talk. Everybody can do that. But when it gets down to doing it, the men get separated from the boys. So this is what James is telling us. That God wants people, not who talk a good talk, but who know how to put their money where their mouth is. Now, this James isn't the only one who tells us this. This is a general principle. I want us to do a little bit of turning tonight and make sure we believe that this is a general principle in God's dealing with us as people. For just a moment, you don't need to turn anywhere, but let me read you from the Old Testament what God said about Israel. This is in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Would you listen, please? Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, I will deal with these people. And in fact, our Lord, in Matthew 15, as he was confronting the descendants of these very people to whom Isaiah made these comments, said to them, you hypocrites, Matthew 15, 8, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Even in the Old Testament, God rebuked his people because they talked a good talk. With their lips they honored the Lord, but in their hearts and with their actions, there was no follow-up. It didn't carry through. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart and their actions are far, far away. But turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I love this little story. You know, when I was a young Christian or even thinking about becoming a Christian, the one thing that impressed me so much about our Lord was his ability to take just a few words and say volumes. I mean, I never saw anybody use words like this before in my life. Never read anything like this. Listen to this. Just a little story. But wow, is it power-packed. Verse 28. Our Lord speaking said, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will go, sir, but he didn't go. And he came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered and said, I will not go. Yet after it, he regretted that he had said that, and he went. Which of the two did the will of his father? 
What do you think? You've got two sons. You say to the first son, would you go do me a favor? Son says, sure, dad, but he never does it. Go to the other one and say, hey, son, would you do me a favor? Guy says, no way. But then he feels bad about it. I should have been nicer to my dad than that. So he goes and does it. Now, which one of the two, Jesus asks, did the will of his father? He was talking to the Jews. And they said, the latter, the second. It's logical, right? Very logical. Look what he says to them. He says in verse 31, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into heaven, will get into the kingdom of God before you. Because John, meaning John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did. And you, seeing this, didn't even feel remorse so as afterwards to believe. What's he after? Here they are. They pray on the street corners. Pious people. Oh, they tie expensive things, mint and cumin, all sorts of expensive aloes and myrrhs. Oh, these are religious people. They blow the trumpets before they walk in to drop their money in the plate so everybody knew they were there. Religious people. But they didn't do what God told them. And here's the tax gatherers and the harlots, the scum of the earth, who didn't pray on street corners. They never told God to start with, I'll do it. They were the second son. They didn't pray. They didn't give anything to the temple. But they obeyed what God told them when John came. Which goes into heaven first? The second. Simple, isn't it? Isn't that logical? Makes good sense. How come these Jews missed it? Oh, but Jesus didn't stop there. Would you turn back with me to Matthew 7? just to make sure that the point is well understood. He tells us one more time that action is the key. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house. Yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. First time I ever read this, second time I ever read this, third time I ever read this, I thought our Lord was talking about people who were Christians, built their house on the rock. People who weren't Christians, didn't build their house on the rock. And I suppose maybe there's some application there. But would you notice, both groups heard what he said. Would you notice that? Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine. And verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine. They both heard what God had to say. What's the difference? One were believers and one, were, one, one wasn't? No. 
At least he doesn't say that. The key is one group heard what he said and did it. The other group heard what he said and they didn't. That's the key. The key is they both had the chance. But one group obeyed and one group didn't. My little boy sings a song, you know, the wise man built his house on the rock, you know that one. He loves that song. And um, for a while, about the only word in the song he knew was the word firm at the end. We'd get down, and the house on the rock stood, and then we'd say, you're on, Jamie, and he'd go, Fwum. We knew what he meant, even nobody else did. Everybody'd go, what was that? We'd go, well, it was firm, but it's just a little bit garbled in the translation. Real message there, though. And the difference is not who heard his word, but who did it. And we could go on, but one last passage I want us to look at is 2 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 5. The book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where our Lord, through Paul, is speaking to believers. Let me repeat that. Our Lord is speaking to believers, not unbelievers. So he's speaking to you, better listen, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You might say, wait a minute. I thought once we trusted Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. That's true. Not for heaven or hell, but this is what Paul's talking about. This judgment seat of Christ we're all going to stand before is in heaven. We're all there, but there's a little more to it. We will all stand before this judgment seat, meaning we all believers. Now, would you notice that each one may be recompensed for his thoughts, intentions, words, deeds in the body according to what he has intended to do according to what he wished he had done according to what he committed himself to do no it doesn't say that it says according to what he's done whether good or bad when we stand before our Lord to be evaluated as Christians, God is not going to be concerned that much about what we intended to do. God is not going to ask us, what did you commit yourself to do? Did you come forward in a church service? Did you stand? Did you raise your hand somewhere? No, he's not going to be that concerned about that. Not then, anyway. He is now, but not then. He's going to open whatever ledger he keeps. And the only thing written in there is going to be what we did. What we did. Not too very long ago, I had a, a person walk up to me after a Sunday school class when I was working at the church where I was ministering before I came here. He said, hey, I heard you had 127 people in Sunday school class this morning. Isn't that tremendous? And I didn't really want to react, you know, you know, you have to be careful. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with that. And then he started to walk off and I said, wait a minute, let me tell you what would be even better. I said, it would be even better if I had 127 people doing the word of God 
Monday through Saturday. And then in Sunday school on Sunday. Then, and only then, will I have accomplished something. Because you see, anybody can come to church. You offer enough lollipops and enough suckers and offer to give away a TV set and you can fill a church. You can do it. It's not that hard. But to get people to live the Word of God and let it change their lives and not be just hearers sitting out there, but to be doers of God's Word, that takes the ministry of the Spirit of God. That's where we're going for. Not just to fill up churches, but to get those people who fill those churches the other six days of the week to be doing what God said. When we were ministering over in Maryland, I ran into a football player at the University of Maryland. I won't tell you his name. He wasn't a starter. You wouldn't know him anyway. But this guy was really a character. I mean, he was a character. And he said he had been born again, that he had been saved. And I suppose, really, there's probably a very good chance that he had. But I used to call him privately, Promises, Promises. That was my nickname for this fellow. Every week the same thing. Oh, I promise. I'll be, in, I'll be, I'll be there Sunday. Oh, you can count on me. I promise I'm going to do And I promise I'm going to be at the Bible. And I promise I'm going to... And I... Never saw him. But whenever I go by and see him or call him up, it's always, oh, I, listen, really, I'm very sorry, but I promise next week, whatever it happened to be. I told him one time, I said, you know, this is an old saying, but the road to hell really is paved with good intentions. He said, oh, oh, I know that. I know it. And really, I mean it this week. I mean it. I've turned over a new leaf. I don't know how many sides there are to the leaf he was turning. But I guarantee you, there were plenty. And even though he would promise me and promise me and promise me, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, he refused to break up with his friends that led him into sin and kept him away from spiritual things. He refused to break up with a woman with whom he was carrying on in a biblically illicit way. He wouldn't come to church regularly. He had no regular Bible study or prayer. He was a hearer of the word, but not a doer. A perfect case. A perfect case. And I don't know what he's up to today, but I would suspect, unless he's changed his habits, not much for the Lord. Not much. Now, I think we need to ask ourselves a question, a very simple one, and that is, hey, am I a hearer of the Word or a doer? Do I just listen or do I obey? Now, I know many of you here this evening do try consistently to obey God. And to you, I say, that's great. Be encouraged. God's going to bless you for it. Keep it up. But there are, I would suspect, in a crowd this size, some of us here who are not doers. We're good listeners or we wouldn't be here tonight. But we're not doers. 
And perhaps some of us have moral habits that we know are wrong, that we need to break, but we won't. And even when this book confronts us with the sin of continuing, we say, oh, I know it's true. But we don't change. And perhaps some of us have close associations or dating relationships with people that we know we don't belong with. But we don't change. Sometimes people, even Christians, pollute their minds with books and magazines and movies. They have no business being around. And they read this book which says God is a holy God, but they don't change. And there's lots of different other ways that people are destroying their testimony for our Lord. And in the process, our Lord's reputation itself simply because they're good hearers, but they're not doers. And all I'm trying to say to you this evening is something very simple. And that is, if you want the blessing of God on your life and not His discipline, you had better be doers of the Word and not just hearers. Now, I'm a hunter. I'm beginning to find more and more people in this church are. Oh, you wouldn't think in an area like McLean, Virginia, there'd be too many of us country boys. There's a few. And I know when I go out hunting rabbits or something like that, I have to put on trousers, normally canvas if possible, because rabbit hunting takes you through brambles and stickers and briars of all sorts of things. And I've actually been rabbit hunting where I have been in over my head in big thorn clusters where you know somebody's in there because you can hear them thrashing around, but you can't see anyone, and that's always when the rabbit comes out. You know, you're standing in there, and you're just lucky if your gun's not pointed in your face. And here he comes, whoosh, and that's it. Always happens. Murphy's Law of Hunting. Never fails. And I can't stand brambles. I hate getting stuck. I don't know about you. I detest needles. I detest anything sticking me. I hate it. In fact, I can really go paranoid about one of those little tetanus needles. You know, they're about that big. They're about, I mean, they're that big. And I, I mean, to me, they look like they're as big as this. I mean, I'm petrified. And I hate being stuck. I hate being scratched. I hate having those things snap back and hit me in the face. I can't stand it. You might say, why do you keep going hunting? I don't know. I don't know. Just crazy, I guess. But it never seems to fail that farms have an incredible amount of this kind of growth on their farm. So much so that you would almost think people planted this stuff. It's incredible how much there is. Now, what farmer would plant thorns? What farmer would plant thistles? What farmer would plant sticker bushes, as we used to call them when I was a kid? We didn't know the Latin name, so we called them sticker bushes. Who would plant something like that on their farm? I wouldn't. Would you plant that on your farm? There's absolutely no value, except to frustrate hunters. And yet, many of us as believers are doing exactly that, planting thorns, worthless things in our lives each and every day.
I'd like to close by reading you a couple of verses from the book of Galatians. Many of you know the verses I'm going to read you. They're from Galatians chapter 6. And they're familiar verses, but that's the danger of these verses. They're too familiar. We lose the impact. Now listen carefully. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, meaning, literally, no one makes a fool out of God and gets away with it. Why do you say this? Remember I told you, when you see a four, an F-O-R, it's like a little neon sign saying, here's why, here's why I say this. Why, why does no one mock God and get away with it? For, because, here's why, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You sow peanuts, you get peanuts. You sow watermelon, you get watermelon. You don't sow corn and get cantaloupe. We know that. Who would sow green beans and expect to get asparagus? And you can sow one of two things. You can sow according to the flesh, or you can sow according to the Spirit, meaning biblical obedience. It's up to you. You sow your own field. God doesn't sow your field. He turns the dirt and says, here it is. Plant what you like. And it's up to you. So go ahead, plant. But be assured of this, God says, what you plant will be what you get. And I praise God that many of you are planting beans and corn and cauliflower and broccoli. You getting hungry? Yeah, I am too. Yeah, we're planting good stuff. Planting obedience to our Lord and watching the fruit roll in. But you know something? There's some of us who are planting brambles. But we think, oh, God loves me. Oh, God wants to, to bless me. Oh, I'm God's child. Oh, I'm headed for heaven. And it doesn't really matter what I plant. God's still going to give me fruit. Wrong. Wrong. God loves you. Yes, he does. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are on your way to heaven. That's true. But may I remind you, God wrote this book of Galatians to believers. This isn't some truth for people who don't know Christ. God says to believers, what you plant will be what you get. So if you want to plant according to the flesh, God says, go ahead. It's up to you. You want to disobey me and plant thorns and thistles and brambles and worthless growth? Go right ahead. It's your life. That isn't what I want for you, God says, but it's your life. But God says, my promise is to those who plant obedience, who do what I tell them, not who say they're going to do it, who do it. Those people will see the crops come rolling in. Isn't that good? Isn't that neat? And I don't know what you're planning this evening. Only you and God know what you're planning. But I'll say this. You nor anyone else is going to make a fool out of our Lord. 
You're not going to mock him and get away with it, whatever you plan. I assure you, based on the authority of this book, whatever you plan will be what you reap. So James exhorts us, plant something that you'd like to see when it comes up. Be doers of the word, not just hearers, doers. And I don't think there's a one of us here, no matter how hard we're trying, who can't afford to be reminded that God means what he says. So be careful what you plant, because it's your garden. Let's pray together. Father, your word encourages us so many times, but there is also the side of your word that warns us. And Lord, we have been warned this evening, gently and yet firmly, to be careful how we live. And Father, I want to confess to you, first of all, for myself, that you know there are so many things here and there that I'm just not careful enough about. I pray you'd help me be more careful because I realize what I plant is what I reap. Father, I pray for these people, both individually and corporately, that they might be careful what they plant and that we as an assembly might plant obedience to you because on the other side of the coin is the promise of your blessing if we'll obey Christ. So, Lord, as James has told us, deliver us from just being hearers only, but rather make us doers, people who take what you say seriously and by your grace seek to implement it. In Jesus' name, amen.